Montpelier Road and WalkerVT.com. It's time to get the story behind the story. Interviews with newsmakers, newsbreakers, and your phone calls. Radio Vermont presents The Mark Johnson Show. Thank you, Jim Condy. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Thanks for tuning in. Another sweltering day out there today. Thanks for spending part of your morning with us. Coming up on the program, uh, forecaster Roger Hill says we may uh, kiss 90 again today. Apparently, that happened in a few places. So, uh, at the Knapp Airport, I heard him mentioning. So uh, keep your eyes out for that. Uh, keep yourself hydrated. That's always important on days like today. No other advice will be coming your way other than to uh, stick around for the program this morning because I think you're going to want to hear the discussion we have sort of picking up on a theme that we were talking about last week. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if we ever really have themes here on the program, but we were talking about the concept of forgiveness last week in the context of this journalist who wrote a book about a, uh, about a serial uh, murderer. Uh, and uh, it was nice. I got a, a nice call from uh, a local gentleman here, uh, Roy Lloyd, who works with the International Forgiveness Institute, which uh, I'd never heard of. And it actually is uh, headquartered in Madison, Wisconsin. So we're going to have a bit of a uh, sort of a phone in-person interview here this morning. Because uh, joining us live on the line this morning is Dr. Robert Enright. He is uh, with the International Forgiveness Institute, and Roy, as I mentioned, is here with us in our studios in Waterbury. So I want to thank uh, both of you for uh, joining us this morning. Um, I'm going to go with Bob. Bob, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, Mark. Thanks. Th- thanks for uh, for joining us, and uh, say good morning to Roy, because he's really glad that you're here. <laughs> Indeed, I am. <laughs> I'm really glad you're here, Roy. I've, <laughs> thank you. I, I've got your back. <laughs> you know, uh, Roy was actually just telling me the story of how you guys met. I want to hear, Bob, I want to hear your version on this. Well, we met through a mutual friend, Philip Lodewick, who said that Roy absolutely 100% has to be at the very first conference at any university ever held anywhere in the world on the topic of person-to-person forgiveness, because I'm a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So I got in touch with Roy and said, what do you think? He said, great, we met here in Madison. We ended up having a book published called Exploring Forgiveness based on that conference, and now we've been together for about 21 years. Why do you think that friend hooked you up with Roy? What was it about him? Because he said Roy's a winner. He even uh, sings uh, in some of the best venues in New York. And he is a world traveler and a communicator and a winner. So I said, okay. Why, uh, why, Roy, why do you think this friend turned you on to Bob? I think he knew that... Um Forgiveness and topics like that, especially interpersonal relationships, are very important to me. And I'm discouraged so often by how we treat each other. So that I think forgiveness, as uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu said at our conference, without forgiveness, there is no future. And I really think that's true. And I think Bob and I are involved in something that uh, will take the rest of our lives and hopefully go on long after. When did you two meet, and what were you doing at the time? Uh, at the time, I think, uh, it's hard to remember, I think I was, I had my own little uh, communications company, and uh, was doing a lot of different things, um, but primarily with the nonprofit and religious world. Okay. 
How did the International Forgiveness Institute come about? Bob, let me start with you on that one. Well, it was interesting because I had been studying forgiveness as my research topic at the University of Wisconsin. And in the early 90s, the Chicago Tribune published an article on the topic of person-to-person forgiveness. And the author actually published my home phone number in the piece. Wow. And so I probably got 100 phone calls, and my wife Nancy said, why don't we put the phone out in the woods? And it was right (laughs) then we realized that there's a large demand for information on how to go about forgiving. That's what the International Forgiveness does. It's a resource for knowledge so people can appropriate forgiveness if they wish. And so, you know, talking to Roy and others, it seemed like the right thing to do. And what's interesting is we did use the word international forgiveness when we were just a mom and pop organization starting uh-huh. out, but now it's spread all over the world. And so that was insightful that who, whoever came up with that idea, international, probably it was Roy, it was a, it showed things that would be coming in the near future. Was that your idea? I have no idea. <laughs> we'll give you credit, Just, Roy. I'll, I'll, I'll say yes. No, I, I, would, I would be glad to claim it, but who cares? <laughs> the, the point is that there's a need for forgiveness around the world. I mean, each of us daily um, are involved with either receiving, usually, or sometimes giving forgiveness. I'm sure that's true with you, Mark. Mm-hmm. And, but this isn't unique to us here. Mm-hmm. And there are so many spots around the world where there is anger, resentment, um, as well as despair, a feeling of isolation. And forgiveness can be a bridge to a real life. It sounds on its surface like it's so simple. I mean, of course we should forgive. But it's a very difficult thing, I think, for a lot of people to do. And I think one of the problems is that it's viewed as some sort of a weakness. I guess, why, why do you think that is? Why do you think people view it as a weakness? I'm not sure, but... Uh, I mean, do, you, do you agree with me? No, I don't. I think forgiveness right. I, I mean, comes, I from, it I comes from strength. I don't think it is a weakness, but I think it's perceived to be that way. Yes, it's, it's not a weakness, I think, because you have, to, you have to be willful about this. And it means that you are not going to just endure something that happened to you. It means that you're going to make a decision about the fact that you're not going to allow someone who has harmed you in some way to continue to do that every day. You're going to break the cycle, and we say that forgiveness is, first of all, a gift that you give to yourself, Mm -hmm. which means then that you can envision a more beneficial future for yourself as well as for the person who injured you. So it's very it's, it's a strong thing that you do. Uh, Bob, can you talk about that? Is, is is it am I correct that some people really perceive it as weakness? There are many people, Mark, who perceive forgiveness as weakness, and do you know why? Because they misunderstand what forgiveness is. Okay. See, we we've rarely been schooled in the topic of forgiveness, which is a moral virtue like justice and patience and kindness, and we are schooled in justice at home when. Someone punches their sister, or as soon as they enter school and they want to keep the crayons when they have to pass them back to the teacher, and we jump 
on justice, and there are laws about justice. If you speed on the road, you will learn about justice very quickly. (laughs) When was the last time you heard a thoroughgoing dialogue on the importance of forgiveness in any society anywhere in the world? It's a hidden virtue. And I think it's a hidden virtue for two reasons. First of all, it's just off the radar. And second of all, because people do think it has to do with condoning. Others seem to think it has to do with being a religious person. So they say, well, I'm going to leave that to the church, mosque, or synagogue, and it's not for me because I don't do that sort of thing. Well, that's not true either because justice has made its way into the secular world. Why shouldn't mercy and forgiveness? What would be the reason for these not to do that when they can balance justice? So it's not a cold, calculating, kind of, kind of in, uh, ignoring the humanity of the other. What forgiveness does is it humanizes the other who has hurt me. And paradoxically, I'm the one who's healed emotionally. Mm-hmm. You know, when I think of forgiveness today, I think of South Africa, Rwanda, place, countries, places like that. I don't think of individuals, for example. Yes. Well, it's the individuals who have to play this out on those levels. And in fact, uh, someone named Rudy Dalton in South Africa will be starting a wing of the International Forgiveness Institute shortly, the International Forgiveness Institute South Africa, because people still have been disenfranchised. People have hurts from the past. And see, on each individual level, the heart has to heal if the community is going to come together in any kind of harmony. My point is this. If we do top-down bureaucratic peace initiatives, we're missing the heart of the matter. We're missing the human heart. And unless the human heart begins to heal, no matter what we do on a governmental level, the seething toxicity of resentment is going to live on. And I know, because I work in Belfast, Northern Ireland, the seething toxicity of resentment can be passed on literally for hundreds of years from one family member to another. How do we stop that? We don't stop it by throwing money at it. We need money in these places, or by building better roads or better water supply. All of that's important, but what's missing is repair of the human heart. All right. In forgiveness, is it first a mind thing and then a heart thing, or is it a heart thing and then a mind thing, or is it the same time? No, it's a mind thing first because it's easier to change the mind than the heart. When we're angry, we don't have control over the emotion so much, but we do have control over how we think about the other. We can begin thinking of the other more broadly than just the injuries he or she has perpetrated on me. So it's much more easy for me to begin thinking of the person as a human being who has done bad things, but nonetheless shares a lot with me. We share a common humanity. We're both going to die someday. Our bodies work similarly. We all have wants and needs, and we don't like to be under the boot heel of power gone mad. There's a lot we actually share in common that we miss when we have a wounded heart, but thinking about it can start restoring some of the truth of this. 
If you have any questions or comments for our guests this morning, you can join us on the program at 244-1777 is our local number, toll-free 877-291-8255. We've been talking with Robert Enright and Roy Lloyd. They're both with the International Forgiveness Institute. You know, but Roy, the, the one difference, you know, uh, Bob was just talking about how we have similarities and there's no question about it. But one big difference between us and the person who we're trying to forgive is that they may have done something incredibly horrible to us. That's true. And it... Uh, it and maybe may I don't want to forgive them. That, I can understand that. But I think that part of what you're suggesting there is that we think that there won't be justice. <laughs> that if we forgive, there aren't consequences actually for the person who has done the harm. You're right. And that's not true. I would think they're off the hook. No, they aren't. Each of us is responsible for our actions. So if I have harmed you, I'm still responsible for the actions, but that's not the end of the story. That can be the beginning of the story. So that I can relieve myself of what you have done to me, and I can see you as a possibility of being perhaps a different person but if you've done something that you should go to jail for you should go to jail mm-hmm. or if you are abusing your spouse uh maybe you you need to be separated or maybe something needs to happen there so that's not negated by forgiveness mm-hmm. okay um bob what if um what if you killed somebody in my family if I did what now, Mark? If you killed somebody in my family. Okay. Well, if I killed someone in your family and then uh, someone came up to me and said, well, you should, for, you should, or you came to you and say you should forgive, I think that is not reasonable because forgiveness is a process and takes time. It cannot be forced or demanded. You shouldn't be put under pressure to do so. It's an entirely different kind of moral virtue than justice. Where justice is required, forgiveness is not. Hmm. I have a book called Forgiveness is a Choice, and I did that deliberately to show that this book isn't about cajoling you to forgive, but maybe being drawn to it. Many, many, many people who lose loved ones in the way you describe through murder will not forgive ever. Mm-hmm. I do not judge them because it is their choice one way or another. But I do know people personally, friend, for example, who has forgiven the murderer of her daughter and her husband didn't. And he died early of stress-related causes. Yeah. And she actually does attribute that to his lack of forgiveness. And so the murderer took two victims that day. Mm-hmm. The the 12-year-old girl, and then 20 years later, uh, the dad. Mm. So if someone can find the path of forgiveness, it could literally save their life okay. when, when it comes to this kind of horrific thing. But if they don't forgive, I hope they have another way of dealing with their broken heart, because forgiveness really is surgery of the heart. And I applaud those who do it, and I stand with those who don't. How did the mother get to that point? She got to that point because she saw her family degenerating before her eyes. She said, I could have killed that man with my bare hands. And she realized that he is actually then passing on the violence to her, right into her own heart. She 
made a decision. See, it's cognitive. It's thinking first. I will not do that. I am not going to leave a legacy of bitterness for my daughter. And instead, I'm going to leave a legacy of good. And she reached out to the man. And the man actually called her on the very day of the one-year anniversary of the daughter being abducted. Wow. And he called to taunt her. And she said, what can I do for you? And the FBI was monitoring the call. And he was so taken aback by her love, if you will, that the FBI caught him. And he ended up in jail, justice being served because of her forgiveness. Wow. All right. Hmm. That's like a double reverse there. Wow. You bet. All right. So the International Forgiveness Institute, is there a building well, you know, there used to be a building, and we decided it's just gathering dust because when we're talking to Liberia or Belfast or Athens, we talk to people who usually are in the poor areas of their communities because we reach out to those who are disenfranchised, depressed, and in need. And so we figured, why do we have this building? And so now everything is virtual and done through air travel. And so, no building, it's not necessary, it's a cost that shouldn't be. How do you get brought into places? Well, we ask or they ask. For example, uh, with Liberia, we now have International Forgiveness Institute Liberia. I was Skyping on Sunday with 20 to 30 children and Elizabeth Chipu, C-H-E-A-P-O-O, who runs the International Forgiveness Institute Liberia. And her husband came to me, Josiah, about five years ago at my office hours at the University of Wisconsin. He sat across from me, he looked me in the eye and he said, I want you to help me save my country. And I thought to myself, my office hours never get this interesting. Nobody's mm -hmm. ever asked me how I can help them save their country. <laughs> yeah. And so he has been in the peace movement. He got permission from the Department of Education and he even went up to the level of the president of the country, Ellen Sirleaf, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, by the way. And she endorsed forgiveness for her country because 250,000 people at least were killed by civil war. Wow. So now we're instituting forgiveness education as best we can. We were, of course, we went to a screeching halt last year because of Ebola. Uh, all of the schools were closed down by executive order of Alan Sirleaf. Mm -hmm. And so we're building back up again. But that's just one example. He looked me in the eye and said, I want you to help me save my country. And I thought about it for a moment and said, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you didn't have anything better to do that. Though. Yeah, right. I figure what the heck. <laughs> yeah, nice thing when you get home from work and your wife <laughs> right. says to you, what'd you do today? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. You got it. Is there, are there obstacles because of the, the, the tribal nature of some of these countries? Is that, is that a help? Is it a hindrance? Is it a non-factor? Is, is it just everybody's the same? It's a 100% hindrance. Really? Oh, 100% because... People think that we might be sectarian, that's a common word in Belfast, we might be on one side or the other, and what's our game, what are we in this for? Because, of course, war engenders mistrust, and so we have to build relationships, 
and it's very, very difficult. For example, we're working in Galilee, uh, a little town there called Ibeline in Israel, and we're working in an integrated school with Muslim and Christian Arabs, which is really very rare, as you can imagine. Yeah. And it takes time for them to integrate, to see the humanity in the other, but they already did that hard work. So when they asked us in to do our kind of work, we didn't have to bridge gaps here. They already did that. But mm. in Belfast, for example, it's one of the most segregated communities in the entire United Kingdom, where you can grow up as an Irish Catholic and never meet a British Protestant person, ever. Okay? And that's how segregated it can be. Wow. And so to work there takes a lot more effort, and of course the government is doing great work through their education for mutual understanding, but the kids get together not more than probably four, five, six times a year, and while that's good, any effort is worthwhile, it's not enough to humanize the other, and that's our goal, mm-hmm. humanize the other while still sometimes having to watch our back, as Roy pointed out. Because forgiveness and justice always and must grow up together. Mm-hmm. It, you mentioned this idea, though, that uh, justice and things like forgiveness are sort of universal concepts that are, I don't know, almost moral concepts. And is, is that true worldwide? Or I mean, justice seems to be, but is yes. is forgiveness? I have never met a culture or a, an ancient document, whether it's Hinduism, Confucianism, Buddhism... Quran, the Christian, or the Hebrew scriptures, that's had a bad word to say about forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Never seen it. I've never seen a culture that says we don't know what forgiveness is, or when we do, we don't like it. There are people who don't like it. There are people who reject it. But in terms of larger cultures, literally, I've never seen it. And I'm an egghead professor, and I study this stuff. Never seen it. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that, too? Well, I think that... um, I think that there is a sense throughout the world, and let's say in this country, that there there can be bridges between people, but we're not sure what they are. And I think, especially in these days, where we seem to be bombarded with hateful speech that leads to hateful acts, as our governor did said in a weekend commentary in one of the local newspapers. It's hard to get past that because it sets up a we-against-them kind of attitude. So trying to figure out what the bridges are is very difficult. And so we know that there are some ways to get across or to understand each other but we just don't know what they are. And we think that forgiveness is a path to find some commonality that goes beyond, um, say, putting others down or rejecting others. It means that we can affirm ourselves without meaning that we have to put others down to do it. Okay. Boy, and that just, it sounds good, but I'm thinking the example that you just raised, this terrible case here uh, locally, you know, um, I mean, the the idea of trying to find forgiveness in that, you know, I just really have a difficult time getting my head around. 
You know, to me, it part of what somebody, when they do something really bad, part of it is they get ostracized. And they're not welcome back, you know, immediately kind of into this community that we have. I don't think it's a question of being welcomed so much as recognized. Um, it's not like you're going to invite the person who shot uh, the, the worker, the social uh, services worker, uh, into your home. It does mean, though, that you can see that there's something more to that person than that incident. I don't know if that's if I'm making myself clear at yeah. that point. Yeah, no, I I get that. And you, I mean, let's say that you're an abused spouse. It doesn't mean that you have to welcome your abusing spouse back into your house, or that you need to be with them. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a way to disconnect from the injury that you have received. Okay. Who's the onus on when it comes to forgiveness? Let's use this example you just gave of, a, of a, an abused spouse. Who's the, who's the burden on? Who makes the first step? That's a good question. Uh, I, I don't know that there is a, a one way or the other, but Bob, what do you think? I think there is not a one way or another. It depends idiosyncratically on each relationship. Uh, I was confronted actually with a fellow professor just within the past several months who said, well, if you initiate forgiving rather than waiting for the other to apologize, aren't you putting all the burden for healing onto the one who is forgiving? And to put that burden of healing on the one who does the forgiving isn't fair. And this guy was totally opposed to what we do. Hmm. And my response was, well, what if you ended up blowing out a knee while running. Are we going to blame the one now injured because they have to go to rehab? Well, of course not. They have to do some work now that they've been injured. And so when we start forgiving, one can initiate that if one is ready, if one is strengthened in forgiveness, if one has walked its path, rather than being deprived of that because of the silence we see in our communities. And it's okay, and it's good to enter the rehab of forgiveness, of forgiving. Or if someone also has a strong conscience and has hurt others, that person might come forward first, apologize, try to repair so that the two can reconcile. But see, here's the key to this. Sometimes, often actually, when there is a rift between two people, there is no reconciliation and there is no apology. What does the one who might be injured and might forgive do then? Mm -hmm. We're of the opinion, philosophically, you can defend this very well philosophically, but not everyone agrees with it, that to forgive is an unconditional act without condition. You can move forward without the other apologizing. And here's why that's so important, just quickly. If you wait for the other person to make a move in apology and they do not, then you are trapped in unforgiveness, controlled mm-hmm. by the other. That's right. Okay, until they decide to shape up. But unconditional forgiveness sets the forgiver free to do this whenever he or she wishes for true healing that can take place. And our science shows those who forgive can decrease significantly in depression, anxiety, and anger, an increase in self-esteem and hope and get their lives back. 
And what it means is a situation doesn't have to fester. And um, uh, following up on what Bob was saying there, when people say that forgiveness is some sort of a soft topic, Bob has, through hard, statistically significant research, shown that what he's just describing is true. And we've even done something uh, kind of interesting, I think. We got a grant to study heart attack patients. And half of the people uh, had their regular regimen. The other half had forgiveness studies added to the usual, the, the, the medications, all the other things. The survivability rate of those who had forgiveness added to their, their recovery was markedly different. It was much improved. I mean, just think of how much stress is involved. How many people for 30 or 40 years haven't talked to their brother or sister? Um, it, it, things, there needs to be an end to it. Mm-hmm. And it brings significant uh, physical, mental, uh, emotional strength. So, take a call from Waterbury. Chris, good morning. Hi, good morning. Um, good morning to your guests as well. Uh, I've been listening here for a little bit. Um, I think we've all had issues in our lives where we've had to uh, perhaps try to forgive. But um, I guess the question I've got is, uh, you know, forgiveness seems like a, a reactionary um, perhaps solution to something that's happened. But um, how does respect, you know, and the, and the uh, role of respect towards one another play in in perhaps subduing or eliminating the need for um, the struggle to try to forgive. And I'll listen and uh, okay. hear your response. Thanks. Right. Well, I'd like to start with that, and then maybe, Roy, you can jump in. What the caller is talking about is preventive work, and that's exactly what we do in our forgiveness education programs around the world. We are trying to help children understand the humanity in the other, which includes respect, because to forgive is part of giving respect to the other, not because of what they've done, but who they are as persons. And if we can start with children as young as age four, let them understand that there are injustices in the world, and they know, of course, that justice itself is one response to that, but give them the untried, unspoken knowledge that forgiveness can be part of the equation. And they themselves might grow up to be less bullying when they're 14, a better partner when they're 25, a better worker, all because of the preventive work of forgiveness education. And we have curriculum guides for teachers from pre-kindergarten through grade 12, and they've been used, as I said, in various venues across the world. And I think that would then stem the cruelty in the heart and in the mind and much, and, and very importantly, in our relationships with one another. So here, here for this idea of preventive work, we've got to put forgiveness education into the curriculum. Is it more important than reading or math? No, but it's equal to that in terms of being a human being in its fullest sense. 
I would add that uh, a sense of respect has to begin with yourself. And oftentimes, people who have been injured blame themselves. Um, and we know the various instances that that could be true. So I think forgiveness, I think, works with respect for ourselves that allows us then to have the strength to be able to offer that unconditionally. And we, if we're not expecting anything back, uh, Bob was quite, quite correct. We don't think that forgiveness always leads to reconciliation. But that's, that could be um, a worthy goal, but it's not necessarily expected. When you give something, you're not necessarily expecting anything back, but you are giving a gift to yourself, first of all. And that, I think, helps to respect yourself. You're giving a gift to the other person, too. That's right. But not all gifts are received. Yeah. I'm still having a little difficulty giving a gift to somebody that killed somebody in my family. And see, that's perfectly okay. And you shouldn't be hard on yourself with that. Because forgiveness is a process that can take time. We worked with incest survivors, for example, and it took them 14 months to forgive. And all of them started by saying, I will never do it. Mm-hmm. But we said, come on in anyway. So people have to be gentle with themselves if today, when they're hearing this conversation, they say, no way, no how. But that might not be their final word on it. All right. So, did, I mean, are you wearing them down? Is it a matter of time? What is it that gets somebody 14 months later to say, yeah, you know, you're right? Their own internal pain. Internal pain from the devastation of huge injustice is the biggest motivator to say, I have to do something about this. And with the incest survivors, there were 12 of them, and Suzanne Friedman at the University of Northern Iowa was the head of this. Uh, all of them tried everything under the sun in terms of therapy and exercise and this and that. And some of them came to us in their 30s and 40s where they were living decades with this horror that happened when they were 10, for example. And nothing really cut into their depression. All of them came to us psychologically depressed. It makes sense. After 14 months, six of them who had the forgiveness therapy were non-depressed. And 14 months after that, they were still non-depressed. Then the control group, who were waiting for the first group, started forgiveness, and they too became non-depressed. And so the inner pain is the greatest motivator of saying, it's my lifeline. I'm grabbing onto this to see what happens. Could this be, I'm just thinking of, could this be, as you were describing this, could this be used for vets somehow to help them with post-traumatic stress? Uh-huh. I just addressed two vet groups. How did you know that, Mark? And we had it audio recorded, and it was here in Madison, Wisconsin. I talked with two different vet groups, one at the Veterans Administration Hospital and the other called the Vet Center. And they actually want to take the audio recording to other vet centers because it fits perfectly. It really does. Because those with the post-traumatic stress sometimes have to forgive themselves and, or have to forgive others. And I'm not saying every veteran has to forgive themselves. No, no, no. That's a misunderstanding. But if they do think they had crossed the line, this is open to them. And when they see others have crossed the line on the other side of battle, they can have this as part of their healing. See, forgiveness is not a substitute. It's an addition to 
treatment regimens. Mm, okay. Uh, John, hang on the line one second here. I've got to take a break, um, but I want to get to your phone call. And uh, we'll be back and continue our discussion. Bob Enright and Roy Lloyd are both with the International Forgiveness Institute. Back after this. We're back, and we've got Jack Castellaneta from Formula Nissan and Barry here. Jack, you've just announced the bottom line sales event, and customers are already coming in for great deals. Nothing is simpler than a bottom line deal, and that's what this sales event is all about. Forget the sticker price, forget dealer markups, there's none of that here. We keep it simple, and simpler is cheaper. There's nothing simpler than 0% financing for 72 months, plus up to $1,500 cash back on new 2015 Altimus. Even a new 2015 Sentra has 0% for 72 72 months and $250 cash. We had Ron drive all the way here from White River Junction, and he left in a new Nissan Maxima with $5,000 right off the MSRP. It's stories like that that have people coming from Burlington, St. Jay, even Lebanon, to get the best Nissan deal, plain and simple. And that's why Formula Nissan is consistently ranked among the top Nissan dealers in Vermont. Only at Formula Nissan on the Barry Montpelier Road next to Pizza Hut and at FormulaNissan.com. Let us show you how easy it is to do business here. Summer fun at the fair. Tomorrow's opening day. The first of two kids' days featuring the Walbridge Family four-wheeler pull at the 148th Orleans County Fair with bicycle giveaways, coin scramble, and free shows like horsing around, masters of the chainsaw, and harness racing, weather permitted. Don't miss the Remax tethered hot air balloon rides. Unlimited Dreamland Amusement Midway rides are free with your main gate admission during the Orleans County Fair tomorrow through Sunday in Barton. Information at orleanscountyfair.net. This Thursday night at 7, it's the next-to-last Thursday night at Barry's Thunder Road this season. The high-speed stock car short-track superstars at the site of excitement will tear it up on those asphalt high banks as American-Canadian tour drivers get after it for the King of the Road title. Barry's Nick Sweet and Cody Blake again battle New Hampshire's Derek O'Donnell and try for an $800 bonus if they or anyone wins their qualifying heat the Maplewood semi-feature, and the 50-lap main event. And there's more. The one you've been waiting for. The annual Run What You Brung at the line. Two vehicles, registered and inspected. Standing start, one lap. Winner advances, loser leaves town. All kinds of cars in the sportsman and street stock races. All kinds of surprises when Jet Service Envelope and Accurate Printing present the next to last Thursday night this season at the road. Barry's Thunder Road, post time 7, Thursday night on Quarry Hill. The Spruce Peak Performing Arts Center in Stowe presents the undisputed king and queen of Scottish music, Alastair Frazier and Natalie Haas, this Saturday, August 22nd. She's a vibrant young cellist. He's the Michael Jordan of Scottish fiddling. Together, they transport you from ancient Celtic tunes to contemporary reels faster than your feet can tap. Alice Dare Frazier and Natalie Haas, in Stowe, August 22nd. For tickets, visit sprucepeakarts.org. At 802 Cars, it's our 8th annual employee pricing event. Hi, this is Dave Birmingham. At Twin City Subaru, you pay what we pay. Every new 2015 Subaru in stock will be sold at employee prices, with no exceptions. You pay the same low price that we pay. Listen to our employees. So if I want a legacy, you pay what we pay. I want an present. You pay what we pay. What about one of the all-new 2015 Subaru Outbacks? You pay what we pay. Don't forget my Forester. You pay what we pay. Not some, not a few. Every new 2015 Subaru in stock will be sold at employee pricing. 
from Crosstrek to WRX at Twin City Subaru. You pay what we pay. We're so easy to find. Click on TwinCitySubaru.com. Call 844-802-SUBARU. Drive ID9 to exit 7. Employee pricing is less than one minute off the interstate. Twin City Subaru. Driving to be Vermont's number one Subaru dealer. moment of your time for our friends at the Vermont Coffee Company. It is coffee roasted for friends and uh, we encourage you to go out and buy a couple of bags of it and then pick up the phone and invite a friend over. Maybe you even uh, ask forgiveness when they uh, come over. When you don't have you know, sugar cream then and you make them drink it black, then you can ask for forgiveness on that. I, I shouldn't, I'm not joking. But That's okay. Right. Well, you know, I, Let me I, just tell people where they can buy the products. Yeah. Shaw's, Hannaford's. You can also buy it at all the major independent grocery stores and all the major co-ops, too. And, of course, you can purchase it online at VermontCoffeeCompany.com. You were saying? I apologize. No, it's okay. <laughs> I was just... You're forgiven. Thank you very much. Yes. I, I knew I was going to get that. You know, I feel better already. <laughs> I do, too. Because, you know, um, I think we should note that this isn't some theoretical thing. This is very completely practical it has real life meaning and significance and consequences so it's it's nice to think about this in sort of ethereal terms but this is gritty day-to-day stuff about living together mm-hmm. what's the hardest give me an example of where you had to forgive somebody what's the hardest it's been for you to ever forgive anybody roy i think my parents because um, I was brought up to think that I had to do everything perfectly to make them proud and to make them look better to the rest of the family. And uh, it, it's, uh, it was a long time into my adulthood before we ever had that conversation. Uh, but we did. And... Um, the thing that still rings in my mind was I was one of those um, willful <laughs> kids. My, uh, I, my, oh yeah, uh huh. Um, some people would say I was stubborn. I used to think I was just determined. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, the things that worked with me were not washing my mouth off with soap or making me sit in the corner. Oh, that's great for thinking of things, what hurt me and really made me conform was when being told, you don't know how you've hurt me. And I live with that to this day. But I recognize it now. And we did have that conversation, I'm glad to say. But think of how many people, even in the, I mean, forgiveness, in your final days is really significant as a a part of concluding your life. Think of people who haven't been able to have those kinds of conversations. Yeah. What a sad thing. Why should we delay? Did you approach your parents? Yes. How did you start that conversation? I told them that I was angry (laughs) and that we needed to talk about this and that it was really sort of a make or break situation for us because uh, it was harming me. Did they have any idea what you were talking about? Um, not initially, but um, yes, as we talked. The important thing was that we didn't 
yell or scream. We agreed that we would speak quietly and calmly. And if it got too heated, we would just take a break mm-hmm. and walk away from it. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't do it all at once. Mm-hmm. We did it over a period of days, maybe a half hour, an hour at a time, and thought about what we'd said to each other. And um, I heard quite a few things that I didn't want to hear about myself, which frankly were true. <laughs> and they heard things about themselves as well. But we were able to reconcile our worldviews and realize we each had a right to live on this earth and had to find our own path. And that there were good things back and forth as well. Mm-hmm. So... But it's amazing, just, you know, a minute or two ago there, you really are still today quite deeply affected by that. I am. I am. So has forgiveness worked for you? Yes, it has, because I can recognize it and move forward. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I could be stuck, and it could just sit there and bubble and and come out in unfortunate ways. I could could blow up at somebody else for no unknown reason, reason, you know? Yeah. This happens to all of us, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We take it out on somebody else. Mm-hmm. We take it out on people that we think are pretty safe, too. Um, Bob, what's the most difficult thing you've had to forgive somebody for? Well, ironically, I would say it was people in academia once I started studying forgiveness. I wasn't ready for the firestorm that was going to erupt. As an example, uh, one student came into my office and she was pale, white, and she said, I just talked to another professor in the hall, and he told me to drop you as my doctoral advisor because Enright basically has lost it, and what he's studying, forgiveness is a dead end, and you, the student, will never get a job. Wow. And she looked at me, and she said, is, it, is that true? This was in the early days, remember. This was like in the early 1990s when the International Forgiveness Institute was forming and our research was just gearing up. I looked her in the eye and I said, yes, it is possible. You are taking a risk because we don't have the science yet. And this courageous woman took the chance and now she is quite well known in her own right as someone who studies forgiveness. Mm. And do you know why the International Forgiveness Institute is a private nonprofit organization rather than part of the university? It's because I went before an august body of scholars and asked that the International Forgiveness Institute be part of the university. And they basically laughed me out of the room, not literally laughing, but pretty close. Mm-hmm. And I then got a letter saying, we have so many institutes, we just can't have another one. But that very week, uh, an institute that asked to study different print media from the 1850s was granted an institute. I wonder how they're doing these days, just, mm-hmm. just asking. <laughs> uh, and so what's interesting is the head of that committee, which again was in the early 90s, because it was around the time the IFI was established, came to me about five years ago and said, Bob, I was wrong. Some wild and crazy ideas, when you scatter those seeds, 
onto a field sometimes grow up and flower, and forgiveness did, I ask your forgiveness. And I said, sir, I have forgiven you a long time ago. And there was that connection, you see, the human connection, which wouldn't have been made without that. And I was Mm -hmm. ready because I had forgiven him. But I had to deal with a firestorm like you wouldn't believe. We could go on for hours on academia's bullheaded, wrong view of what forgiveness is and trying to stop it. I am so such a strong advocate of uh, academic freedom that that just didn't sit well with me. So I said, guys, get a life. I'm doing it anyway. I'm going to take a call from Heinsberg. John, good morning. How are you? Hey, good, Mark. What a great uh, subject. Um, I just thought I'd share an insight on forgiveness uh, of my own, which I can't claim as an original thought, but just an insight. Um, it seems most often when we discuss forgiveness that it's referred to as a uh, very arduous, challenging, strenuous uh, effort that we have to undertake. Um, And uh, what I wanted to interject on that is that I think if we we really look into the true meaning of the term and the word itself, uh, forgiveness, uh, we can gain another insight, uh, and it is this, that um, the former reference, which I just made, being in the temporal, if you will, if we open to the, the spiritual side of the equation and look at the meaning of the word, I think what it actually refers to is a state of being given to before, or in other words, uh, the uh, instance of receiving or giving a priori or before any incident or motive, which refers, again, in the spiritual realm to the state in which we do live, which is that if we relax and open our minds and hearts, we could acknowledge that this beautiful place that we live in, whether it be our hometown, the state of Vermont, planet Earth, has been given to us before uh, a priori, and that in a similar way, we as sentient beings um, have the opportunity or are actively engaged always in that in such a relationship that the nature of relationship actually is that we're blessed with a, an overabundance of gifts in every realm from high to low, and that if we recognize that, that we are in receipt always of these blessings and understand the meaning of the word, which yeah. is, Okay. All right. That we are being given to before, then we can participate. Uh, we can join that activity, which is always taking place. Okay. I'm going to inter- wake up. I'm going to interrupt you there, but thank you for your call. Very powerful. Let me get uh, Roy. You know, oh, I think I think um, the caller pointed to an important thing: gratitude. And I think that's uh, an important component 
of forgiveness. Because he was talking about blessings. And so often, uh, there are so many people who think that their glass is half full, and the really negative ones think that someone stole their glass. Um, <laughs> you know, if... That's a good line. There, there is so much that we do have that if we can start from a sense of gratitude, I think it makes us more of a person who wants to be beneficial to others as well as to ourselves. Yeah, I think that's it. I think you're right on that. Uh, Bob, what do you want to add to that call? I'd just like to add a different perspective, although, of course, this idea of gratitude and the like I agree with. Even if I am grateful for X, Y, and Z, when someone hurts me, I'm not necessarily ready for that, where I can immediately transcend that and just automatically go to a place of gratitude or well-being, for that matter. Part of forgiveness, so that others realize this, is one step on another, bearing the pain of what happened to me, struggling to see the humanity of the other. Sometimes it's quick for some people, but for most of us, it is a journey we go on. And I have a new book coming up, by the way, with W.W. Norton in New York City, eight, numeral eight keys to forgiveness. And I use in that book the metaphor of traveling. And we stop at way stations, eight of them, and they're basically gymnasiums where we get fit at different places along the way. But to transcend immediately is not in 99.9% of people's consciousness or training. And so we have to go through this fitness, this journey of fitness to become forgivingly fit. Okay. Well, we were just talking actually during the break here about this case, and I, I think it's South Carolina, where the, the mother has uh, almost immediately forgiven and and roy and and john and i were talking about how this may have contributed to a lack of violence within the community compared to some other places where people have been killed but you know what i'm hearing you say is that that forgiveness may not necessarily be genuine if it's given that quickly it's a hundred percent genuine when the person has done the practice of forgiveness toward others repeatedly i got this exact same kind of rebuttal to the Amish in Nickel Mines when the girls were yeah, lined up yeah. uh, execution style and some were murdered and some were permanently injured. The media asked me, aren't they faking it because the cameras were rolling? I said, I've got to get back to you on that. And I studied the Amish culture. They practice forgiveness in the family daily. So they were ready for a tragedy and they didn't know what it was. And when it happened, they were ready. It's the same thing in Charleston, South Carolina. Did you see how quickly the people who lost all the loved ones in the church rallied to, with forgiveness because they had practiced it? Yeah, that, I mean, that's the case I was referring okay. to. Well, see, that's exactly why we need forgiveness education. That is Exhibit A when we're judging what we should do with forgiveness. It's evidence that we need forgiveness education in schools to give students a tool. Forgiveness is about giving tools for life uh, so that they can end up confronting these atrocities 
without stumbling their way to it when they're 35, 45, or 55, when society doesn't give us the time to heal. We've got to start with preventive work, and we have to start with forgiveness education now. All right. One other thing here I want to explore, and we're, we're running a little over, but I, um, I, I got to ask you about this. I mean, part of me feels as though when you forgive somebody, that you're giving up sort of a little bit of, of, of power almost, that you have this thing that you're giving away that may have been, I mean, it, it's not the healthiest thing in the world, but it's, I don't know if you understand what I'm talking yes, about. Yes, I do. I but do. You, you're giving, you know, you're sort of giving up something that may even justify you acting in a way that maybe you shouldn't or, or whatever, that you're kind of giving up almost a power, it feels like to me. You are. And sometimes power is good, like electrical power, so that you and I can have this conversation today. But sometimes there is a power over, a power over people rather than power with or for others. And it's that kind of power that I have found in my 30 years of studying forgiveness that people are loath to, to give up because it's part of their identity. Mm-hmm. Some say, I am a victim, and this is who I am, and it's not comfortable, but it is an identity, and I'm not going to stretch and become forgivingly fit and become a survivor or even a thriver. So yes, you are giving up part of your identity, and that hurts. But that part of your identity literally can kill you if you're not careful. And so you have a choice, you see. What's it going to be? Having this identity that is crippling you, if you will, or to try and get rid of that identity so you can thrive in life. It's people's choice. Forgiveness is a choice, as one of my other books says. Is, um, is, are the eight steps that you talk about, are there, is there any equivalent to Kubler-Ross? They're not with Kubler-Ross because the idea of mourning and forgiveness are related but quite distinct. You see, when we're mourning... Someone has not necessarily been unjust to us. And so that's really where all the difference lies. So we have not incorporated Kubler-Ross, although other writers have. Okay. Hmm. All right. Roy, what do you want to add to that, what you just said there? I just have been thinking that um, here in Vermont, we have so many instances of uh, terrible things that have been happening in schools, uh, as well as other places. And I would love to see some attention paid to what uh, Bob's talking about, forgiveness studies, as a small part of the package of education for our students. So that we might begin to find the common humanity that we share. There's a caller who uh, calls the program and talks about a program called Roots of Empathy. Are you too familiar with this? Not familiar, but empathy is part of our process, so... my interest for sure yeah i know it's something he's very interested in seeing more you know done more in the in the schools you see empathy is a good thing but by itself it can be somewhat neutral in terms of goodness for example i can empathize with how the bank people work so that i really crawl inside their skin so i can rob them see (laughs) empathy can be used for good or ill (laughs) So we have to add that moral virtue component to breathe good life into empathy. That's why we would go farther than empathy alone. It's empathy plus 
reaching out in goodness as best we can to the other, even if they will rebuff us. And if they do, we go our separate ways and done the best we can. Mm-hmm. Okay. Roy, are you still determined these days? Yes, I am. Willful, stubborn? Um, I, I think um, pleasantly so. Okay, pleasantly stubborn. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, um, Bob. Thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it, too. You take care. Uh, and, Roy, so how do people find... Is there a website for the International Forgiveness yes, um, Institute? Bob, why don't you give the information? I think it's... Nationalforgiveness.com. And it has a lot of information there. Probably the most comprehensive website in the world on the topic of forgiveness. International Forgiveness, all run together, dot com. Thank you so much. Bob Enright and uh, Roy Lloyd. Thanks for coming in, Roy. Thank you so much for this. We're going to take a uh, short break. Coming up next, we'll check in with our White House crew. We'll take your phone calls the rest of the way. This is FM 96.1 WDEV Warren, broadcasting from the top of Sugarbush in the flagship AM 550 WDEV. Waterbury, Montpelier, our Washington report coming up next. The McMahon 225 Challenge is over.